0: Hello, I'm Brandon Mercer.
1: And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, February 18th, 2016, and this is episode 14 of Garbage.
0: Alrighty, so we have a little bit of OpenBSD news this week and uh, a bunch of other little random topics. There's been a lot of little things popping up uh, all over Twitter in the news this week uh, that are probably worth talking about.
1: Alright. Theo is finally back from his vacation. Uh, If you follow source changes, you may have noticed that Theo has not committed anything for uh, (laughs) a very long time. Um, So Theo's back. The uh, snapshots are updating again. There was a problem with the uh, signing machine that is used to sign all the um, sets and packages, and I guess that uh, had a hardware failure and is back in uh, service. Yep,
0: that's right. Yeah, I just noticed that uh Rake had a tweet that um Mike B um and Estanera had put together some work for um drivers for uh Hyper-V, Microsoft's Hyper-V and Azure. And I don't know anything about those. I don't know anyone who's using them, but uh OpenBSD will have drivers. So if you guys are trying to get that working or if you have tried it in the past, it might be a good time to give it another try. Uh, there's a tweet out there, um, he's got some stuff on GitHub under his, um, own profile, R-E-Y-K, Rake. So if you want to find those changes and see what they are, you can get them there.
1: And let's see, the, uh, OpenBSD Foundation is doing a new, uh, donation drive.
0: Yeah, uh, campaign drive for 2016 is, uh, started. And, um, you know, they go through a little rundown of things that, you know, like if, um, Every install of PF was to give a cent or something, we'd meet our goal or something like that. But anyway, um, uh, it's really important, big companies, individual donors, um, to be supporting the project either on a one-time basis or a little bit of a recurring basis. Every little bit helps. The, the project has had a, you know, a little bit of a, a burst the past year. So, um, I think we did better than our goals. Uh, but there was times before that when, um, fiscally things were a little bit tight. So, uh, let's not wind up in that position again. Let's, uh, make some donations to the project. Uh, and please remember, when you guys give to the project, this doesn't mean that, um, you're gonna have more sway on the mailing list and you're gonna have your features implemented and all this stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not the way this works. Uh, this isn't a government institution. <laughs> um, you know, the, the funds will be used as the project sees fit. And, um, if you take a look at, uh, the OpenBSD Foundation website, they will show you how those funds have been allocated, um, in the past years. And a lot of them go to hackathons, um, hardware, um, infrastructure, all those types of things that keep the project running. So, um, yeah, make some donations.
1: And, uh, if you're, Employer perhaps uses OpenBSD or even uses, um, OpenSSH on Linux or, uh, OpenBGPD, OpenNTPD, OpenSMTPD, LibreSSL, um, you can donate to.
0: Yeah. If your Android phones have OpenBSD in them and, or your iPhones have OpenBSD in them or parts of OpenBSD in them, feel free to give a donation for those too.
1: Yeah, and uh, so we're going to do this NPR style, and about every hour we're going to uh, come back and say that we want you guys to donate.
0: A new goal uh, has to be met, or we're going to keep talking.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're going to just put out new episodes of us complaining that people haven't donated yet.
0: Yeah, you got to complain about technology one way or another. Yeah. So, um, speaking of Android and Apple... Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's been happening in, um, in the news this week because there's been a big ripple happening, um, around the mobile manufacturers, uh, co- corporations and all that kind of stuff with, um, Apple kind of being charged, uh, he- hard, put in a corner by the FBI to, uh, to expose some of the inner workings of their operating system and actually build uh, backdoors into their um into their product, into their device.
1: Yeah, so the uh I guess the argument that had been running for the past few months at least has been lawmakers trying to say that uh Apple and Google and every other company needs to build in ba- uh cryptography backdoors because um we can't have the uh the terrorists running around encrypting things mm-hmm. without uh the United States being able to read it. Um but this is a slightly uh Different issue where the FBI is uh, specifically trying to get Apple to. I don't know if it's, if you'd really consider it a backdoor. They're getting them to try and disable a software um, mitigation, I guess, to uh, how fast you can enter in um, PIN codes to unlock an iPhone to get access to it. So the way it works right now is if you, every time you put in a bad passcode, iOS um, has a delay in it. And then after like 10 tries, it just wipes the whole phone. So the FBI wants Apple to make a custom version of iOS that does not automatically format the phone and the software delay, um, that is imposed after each failed try, um, should be eliminated Mm -hmm. because I guess the phone that this is happening on is the iPhone five C, which does not have the new secure enclave thing that, um, is actually keeping like the encryption keys in the hardware itself. And that secure enclave has a, like a hardware imposed delay on how many tries you can do. But there's also like a, just a software delay that's on the, the phones that don't have that. And so I guess the FBI just wants that, uh, disabled. Yeah. I think they said they also want some mechanism to input pin codes through like the USB connection or whatever. Yep so that somebody doesn't have to, like, tap in every possible combination, although I don't know why they wouldn't just have a machine that can point at the screen and try every combination.
0: Yeah, that's right. And in this case, um, this was in response to a tragedy. They wanted to get information off of their phone after the fact, and I guess that's kind of what started this whole thing and brought it all about.
1: Yeah, this is the uh, one of the shooters in uh, San Bernardino. Yep. And so people are kind of, uh, theorizing that the FBI is specifically using this case, um, to try to set this precedent with Apple and, and every other company, um, so that they can get the public on their side and on the FBI side and say, you know, Apple, you're preventing us from being able to solve this crime of these, uh, terrorists or whatever, which is kind of ridiculous in my mind.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really ridiculous. And even though this is after the fact, I mean, they aren't trying to have a, you know, a, a passive way to surveil your phone and all this kind of stuff. It's after the fact they're doing, you know, analysis and forensics on all this stuff. <clears throat> the, the really important kind of thing that I guess we have to keep in the, in the front of our minds here is that if this happens for Apple, well, first off, Apple has, uh, taken a big stance against this. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have, they, they dug in their heels against, uh, the request from the fbi now they do comply with subpoenas right so uh google and apple and microsoft they get subpoenaed for information and uh they provide what they can and i guess you know that's i guess that's kind of like how we have to do things you know phone records and all that kind of stuff no big deal but Mm -hmm. but in this case uh there's enough of a distinction between the two that um they're really drawing a line in the sand and saying no this is too far Um, you know, we can't do this.
1: Yeah. Because the information that the FBI is requesting is not something that Apple has. So it's not like something stored in iCloud that Apple can just hand over. It's, um, something that they're forcing Apple to, you know, spend engineering time and, and all that to create this, uh, custom version of iOS for them. Yeah. And so I guess the fear is, um, if they make this for the FBI, would the FBI then have the ability to put this on anyone's phone that they want to get in without, um, you know, knowing the passcode. Right. Or could somebody else, some other government come to Apple and say, "Hey, you did this for the FBI. Why not do it for, uh, for our country's government too, so that we can get into our citizens phones. Yep.
0: Crazy stuff. Crazy times we live in. Um, yeah. Uh, and so not to change gears too drastically, but, um, Uh, Android has kind of made some changes too. You wanted to talk about the um, reversing of the decision.
1: Yeah. So um, like a week ago, Google finally reversed their uh, decision that we talked about, I think, two episodes ago where they were blocking a uh, third-party ad blocker for Samsung's web browser um, that was being distributed in Google Play. Mm -hmm. Uh, Google reversed their decision and said that they would allow that now.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to add to that, um, there were a lot of Android apps being updated this week, um, and I wasn't sure if there was like a coincidence happening or if they were kind of in response to the uh GLibC uh, vulnerabilities that were announced. I, hon- I honestly have no idea.
1: Yeah, it would seem kind of weird if they were, because that would imply that they're like um, statically linking... Yeah. Binaries against um Glibc, whereas most apps would just be written in Java.
0: And they use rlibc, libc and it's all that kind of stuff anyway. Oh, do they? I'm I'm almost certain, yeah. I think um Android and iOS both. Because um I want to say uh Matthew Demsky, he's kind of been working with the Android security team uh to get certain features implemented and I guess they whacked out some of the stuff in our libc that was in there for a reason, and I, I'm giving very uh vague details because that's all I have, but I guess they uh kind of, for the sake of porting something in, you know, did away with a couple features that were rather important and, <laughs> you know, had to r- work at them to make them better at a later date, but, yeah, I'm almost certain they use our libc. So, anyway, yeah, um huge week as far as that kind of stuff goes, people patching a lot of boxes.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And the BSD crowd all said, "What? what's GLib C? <laughs> yeah.
1: So I wanted to talk about um, SSL and Let's Encrypt. Yeah. The uh, Let's Encrypt Free uh, SSL Certificate Authority. Um, I had a chance to migrate some uh, certificates that I had with other companies to them over the past week, and I uh, just wanted to talk about that whole process. Um, it actually started by somebody emailing me and telling me that, the SSL certificate that I had for lobsters, which is one that I paid for, was issued by Komodo, and oh. they were upset that I was supporting Komodo <laughs> because Komodo makes sh**ty software and they're just a general company, but um, I don't really care because it's an SSL c- certificate. It was like $8 a year, and um, the companies are all the same. I don't really care who's... Like, saying that Komodo is signing my certificate doesn't really give it any less or more weight than uh I don't I mean whoever else is selling SSL certificates but anyway so I looked into it and figured I'd uh, check out Let's Encrypt which is a free uh CA and I've used um start.com before um and then everyone kind of abandoned them when it when uh, Heartbleed came out and everyone had to revoke their possibly compromised SSL certificates and start.com who had providing been providing free Certificates was charging money for uh, revocation and reissuing, so everyone was pretty upset that uh, their supposedly free certificate was now less secure because they would have had to pay to, to revoke it. Hmm. So Let's Encrypt is a, um, a nonprofit company that's um, pretty much I think it's trusted by all the major browsers now. So they're currently in beta and the way to um, get an SSL certificate is a lot easier and more automated than uh, your traditional uh, way of getting a certificate where you like fill out a form on a website and they email you something and then you click on a link and then you click approve and then it like emails you a zip file of your certificate. Mm-hmm. So the way that Let's Encrypt is working is that they have a standard protocol that is called ACME, and then there are various clients that just speak the ACME protocol to um, verify that you own a particular domain by checking a particular URL that's hosted at that uh, domain. So obviously this is currently only really working for domains that have websites on them. Um, And then it does the verification and then uh, just uh, issues you a certificate. And then some of the software clients for Acme can then automatically install that certificate So I guess like the official client from Let's Encrypt, uh, the way that that's going to work is that it just, you just run one command and it automatically like creates a, uh, a CSR and then, uh, does the verification of your domain, gets your certificate, installs it, reconfigures Apache or Nginx, um, and then restarts it. And then you'd like run this from cron every three months because, uh, Let's Encrypt certificates are only valid for, I think, 90 days. Mm -hmm. Um whereas uh, normal certificates are valid for like a year or more. So um, the official Let's Encrypt client is pretty uh, large and does a lot of things that I didn't want it doing automatically, um, especially because I'm not running Apache and I just don't want some program touching my config. So there are some other uh, clients that people have written. One of them is called Acme Tiny mm-hmm. um, that I'll link to in the show notes, and it's a very small um, Python script that you can just run and then feed it, like, your, um, your private key, your certificate request, and then, um, like, tell it where to write the, um, the particular file that the, uh, Let's Encrypt servers will go check on your website. And then it'll just spit out, um, the private key and then you install it yourself. So the whole process was pretty easy, um, I wrote, I wrote a small shell script to basically automate running the, um, Python script. Mm-hmm. Because the, the whole process obviously has to run as a root because it has to be able to restart nginx after it installs the new SSL certificate. Right. But I don't want all this crap running as root. So the shell script runs as root and then it makes, uh, uses like mktemp dash t to create a temporary directory, copies the, um, the private key and, um, my Let's Encrypt, um, key into that temporary directory. And then as a, an unprivileged user, it runs the Python script with the private key and the, um, my Let's Encrypt key. And then it writes, it has, that unprivileged user has permission to write to the particular, um, directory for my website that Let's Encrypt needs to check. Cause it's like, um, your website slash dot well dash known slash let's encrypt or something like that so like you can confine it all to one directory basically like it doesn't have to write something into your root um website directory so then that all runs as an unprivileged user and then once it gets the private or the um certificate back then root can copy that into um the etc slash ssl directory and then uh restart nginx and so i have that running every month um so, yeah, I set that up for uh one of my four lobsters, so that's running on a Let's Encrypt certificate now, and that's with Nginx, and then I made that shell script work on another server that still runs the old uh Apache 1.3 uh, for another website. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's kind of scary to run all this stuff from cron and have to kind of worry. I mean, it's weird because it's more automated, but because they expire every 90 days, you have to... um don't really want to do it manually right so you um you have more automation but it needs to do more stuff in an automated fashion and it has to run more often so yeah. it's kind of
0: that scared me a little bit um honestly when i when i went to do it i was like wait it wants to start up a service on my server i have to open up another hole in the firewall and it's gonna connect into there and write stuff to my file system and i was like yeah. all right and then um i found the python script like I think that's in ports now too. That was it. Um, don't quote me on that, but yeah, I think I think that made it to ports. And um, so, what you're talking about too is, you know, privilege separating the whole entire process, so the uh, the service doesn't have access to your whole machine, and you can run it as an unprivileged user. Mm-hmm. So, when the Python standard library winds up having some hole in the HTTP library whatever you know it doesn't have access to do anything under the sun right um but yeah i mean that when i first started reading reading it i was like oh let's encrypt is so awesome i was like wow let's encrypt is kind of intrusive on my machine here
1: (laughs) yeah i mean obviously they're trying to get it so that it's easy for people that have no idea what they're doing um because the actual process of like uh Registering or renewing and then installing a SSL certificate from a normal certificate authority is like a pain in the ass and it's confusing. Yep. And like even to this day, for as many as I've done, every time I do it, I have to do man SSL yep. and copy and paste the open SSL commands that you have to run to like create your requ- uh, certificate request and then your, um, and then like sign it and do all that. Yeah. Malarkey. So this is all a lot easier. Um, I think there just needs to be more um, secure clients written, I guess, uh, kind of like this Python one that just does uh, the bare minimum and you can easily read it and understand what it's doing and then just uh, run that as an unprivileged user. Yeah,
0: every once in a while. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, that's the part that lets them be able to do this on a on a big scale. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if they're reading your private keys from the machine and then exposing something that's kind of validating that you own the domain because you know you installed the software on there you've set up your uh Let's Encrypt account with your uh key that's all coming together going to them and that's kind of validating that's how they're validating you actually own the domain that you're uh, generating a certificate signing request for
1: yeah because the way they do it now is or other companies do it now is they pull a, an email address out of the whois record mm-hmm. for the domain and they email that uh, account. Well, that account doesn't even, or that address doesn't even have to be at that domain. Like, all of my domains are registered with all of my contacted information as hostmaster at superblock.net. So, mm-hmm. for every domain that they're uh, validating that I own, I get an email at a completely different domain that somebody else could be taking over at that particular time to intercept that email. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's exciting stuff. Definitely, I think a step in the right direction. I think they did a good job. I think they were. You know, trying to solve the problem by thinking outside the box, and I think uh, it's an improvement for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's still in beta, um, so hopefully, once it's out of beta and their their clients are stable and secure, um, there will be a a ton more uh, websites using SSL just because it's free and easy to set up, not because they feel like they have to protect any uh, secrets.
0: Yeah. So, speaking of SSL, HTTP two is now the default in Go. And Go just, uh, they just turned 1.6 out to the public. <laughs> and, uh, I, I actually attract tip all the time from them. So I'm like running this all the time. But I, I have seen HTTP2 pop up in my, uh, browsers when I'm doing stuff now. Or, uh, in my, uh, requests that I'm doing to my Go applications and from my Go applications.
1: Hmm.
0: So it's kind of a neat thing to see that going on.
1: Yeah. Um, My only experience with HTTP2 is that uh, Apple's notification servers Mm -hmm. that previously used this proprietary binary protocol, um, they have added a uh, HTTP2 interface so that you can do, um, because the way that it had to work before with their, their implementation was you would just write requests to it, and then any time there was an error with one of your notifications, they would just drop your connection, and then you had to open a new connection to their feedback server and then parse the result and see what you did wrong. But the way that you write data to their notification server is that you have to send a bunch of data and then wait to see if they close the connection or not. Well, when you're sending so many notifications... If you wait too long, you, you, you can't send them fast enough, right? Right. So you have to start sending them faster with, and waiting less time. Well, when you wait too small of a time, when they close the connection, that may have been four notifications ago. So you don't know which particular notification caused an error. So you have to like retry those next four. And it's just crappy implementation. I don't know why they really did it that way, but anyway, their new, uh, their new, uh, Systems support HTTP2, HTTP so you can, uh, they can send you a reply back for each request and say, oh, okay, that one had an error. And then you don't have to like close the connection and reopen it each time. Nice. So I was looking into, uh, doing that in Ruby because all of my stuff is written in Ruby. Um, but I might just make a, uh, a new Go client that talks to HTTP2 because it seems to be a lot more, uh, mature in Go than, uh, the current Ruby library.
0: Yeah. I've actually heard, um, a couple other people writing their first go applications over the past week. And, uh, the feedback that I've gotten from them has been relatively positive. Um, you know, there's all those little things that you kind of discover the first time and you're, you're not really sure what the best approach is because you can do it a couple of few different ways. And so, um, I usually wind up d- using, uh, all of them because I have so many different kinds of, uh, software that in one case I have to do one thing. And then in another case I have to do something completely different. So in terms of like, you know, receiving JSON messages in, sometimes I have to use a map. And then there's other times I have to use a a data object and all this kind of stuff. So little weird things like that, um, that people kind of like, you know, what's the best way to do this? You, Mm -hmm. you know, test the waters and you're like, okay. So.
1: Do you have a uh, port for 1.6? Uh, no,
0: but I think, um.
1: I assume, like, you don't need a lot of patches when you're following, to follow, uh, the head or whatever?
0: No, um, in fact, I don't think we need any anymore. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I, Joel Singh had a few for a while. Uh, he was, he's the one who's been doing the updates and maintaining the port. Mm-hmm. And early on, it was kind of difficult because there were, a lot of patches for the port, um, like some network things that had to happen. And then, you know, obviously it uses our threads. So uh way, way a long time ago, there was like, oh, you have to have this version. And then there wasn't an open BSD release. There was just snapshots. And then the snapshots didn't really have a a Go release to tie back to. So it was kind of uh chicken and egg thing for a while. But then there was an open BSD release. And then there was a Go release. And they... Um, had a lot of changes going in there and it was a bunch of coordination. So it it was almost impossible to have a stable port. And that's why I was tracking the head from, you know, very early on. And then I just kind of never really used the package because I'm always like updating, you know, every other day or so from them. And I just keep trying new things and, uh, kind of got into a habit of doing it. So, um, it's it's kind of like we were talking about last week with the uh ruby gems you know install the gem package and then install all your stuff that way rather than having a um you know using the gem packages from ports right cuz i think there's similar stuff happening with go it's like um you know oh we need go this package or go this library or go this tool or whatever and I, I just use Go to install all of them and it's just easier mm. that way.
1: Yeah. Um, it sucks that, uh, ports is frozen so it won't get 1.6. Yeah. Uh, cause it's, won't be released for a while. Yeah. One
0: thing I heard that was kind of exciting, um, is that as soon as the, um, Go 1.6 release came out, everybody started checking in code, except it wasn't, uh, adds and changes, it was deletes. Uh Dave Cheney, I think, on Twitter said something about everyone was deleting code after the one point six release happened. And hmm. uh I was kind of excited about that. I, I like to see that um they're getting rid of things that no longer make sense to have and they're not gonna yeah. leave them in there for legacy reasons. That's cool.
1: Right. So I'm assuming that was all like compatibility stuff that they could drop once uh one one point six was out?
0: Yeah, I honestly have no idea. I don't know what all the stuff was, but I'm I'm assuming, yeah.
1: So that's the complete opposite uh, way of uh doing it that than PHP where they just keep adding 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 and never removing anything.
0: Yeah. And we we touched on that last week. It's a it's a bad avenue to be going down. It's a bad idea to be doing never deleting a system call, always leaving this stuff in PHP, always leave this stuff in the kernel. It'll mm. rot, it'll give vulnerabilities some sort of head that they can grow and sprout up in the least opportune time and you know it's just a tax surface it's just unmaintained cruft you need to get it out of there
1: well good for them yeah
0: what else is happening this week i saw um i read an article about postgres um 9.5 do you use postgres
1: i do not i use uh maria db nice because postgres scares me
0: (laughs) that's funny Um, I
1: actually just never liked the way that it does authentication, and maybe it's completely different than it was the way that, uh, that one time that I tried it.
0: With the, uh, host file and then authentication by like, oh, your host can do this type of thing and all that kind of stuff.
1: Well, like, MySQL has that, but in Postgres, from what I remember, there was like a separate file for users and stuff. Like, it wasn't, like in MySQL, you can issue a SQL query to pull the users and manipulate them and stuff. But in Postgres, you actually had to, like, log into the machine and edit a file, huh. which seemed weird to me, and it just seemed like it was the opposite of, or, like, a, a weird way of doing it. So I was turned off by it. Um, I know a lot of people use Postgres, and it's, uh you know, more stable and has better features and all that other stuff than MySQL, but I've uh, genuinely just never had any problems with MySQL or MariaDB. Yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, Postgres is pretty much all I've used, um, outside of like commercial solutions of, uh, like Microsoft SQL and Oracle and stuff like that. Um, yeah. but, uh, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting about Postgres 9.5 is if you go way back, um, I don't know, eight, eight years or so, like when I was really studying Postgres and all that kind of stuff and making sure I understood how the inner workings all happened, um, you know they didn't do a lot of like distributed things you couldn't have multiple backends that you would uh send queries to uh
1: mm-hmm. you
0: couldn't like um you know have a a bunch of slaves sitting there all handling queries and stuff even if you wrote the data one time and all that kind of stuff so
1: i don't think you're allowed to call them slaves anymore
0: oh yeah that's right uh it's uh,
1: primary and secondary <laughs> yeah secondary you couldn't have many
0: secondaries uh sitting side by side well, anyway, um, so <laughs> the interesting thing about this article was, um, they were talking about 9.5, um, having both horizontal improvements and vertical improvements. Um, and I think that basically is just, uh, you know, a way to, uh, distribute, um, both geographically and as far as like having, um, uh, you know, separating your queries a- across multiple hosts. And what they said was, is that Uh, In previous releases, you know, you could uh, distribute a query, do a join across multiple hosts. So you Mm -hmm. say, whatever, select from this table, join on that table, get me the data back, and you could have one table on one host and another table on another host. Mm -hmm. But what it did was is it sucked in all the rows (laughs) and pulled them back to, like, the one server and then did the join there. Mm. And uh, that's not really very kind to your network or efficient in terms of you know um data and all that kind of stuff so what they built is in the 9.5 they have stuff to actually um, perform the joins on the separate hosts so um and and i guess the idea is you send the query to both hosts they perform the join and then um are able to merge the more limited data set back on the um, primary host that was initiating the query. Mm-hmm. So less data, less time makes use of indices uh, because obviously if you send the query to the to the um, other machines, it knows uh, how to make use of the indices and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of advantages and a lot of improvements and and I guess. Um, the The last big improvement was, um, what were they talking about? The, um, not only can you do the join on the host, but um, there was some other feature there. They were like, yeah, I can't remember. But anyway, there was some other optimization that came after that. And they're like, you know, we can run and we can walk, but we can't, I don't know. They couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time or whatever that expression was. <laughs> and somebody worked on it a little bit and they were able to um figure out a way to, to do that. They were able to um get both optimizations in there at the same time. And I and I forget the details of what it was. But anyway, cool things and uh, yeah. but that's stuff that I think MySQL has had for a long time, right?
1: Uh I don't know. I've never used anything like that. I've done like the multi host stuff on uh Microsoft SQL before. Where you could just connect to one host and then tell it to issue a query on a remote host. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember the other reason that I never wanted to use uh, Postgres was that every time I would see an update in uh, for the OpenBSD port of it, it would say that you'd have to like dump all of your databases and then yep. re-import them in the new version because the binary like backend was not compatible. Yep. And I always thought that that was like such a dumb thing, like, and that that would cause huge headaches upgrading. So it just like turned me off and I never wanted to do that. Cause I know with MySQL, like I've never had to do that. When it starts up, if it detects that the, the system tables are out of date, it can, it like knows how to upgrade them and can just, um, like do that on the fly.
0: Yeah. And then here's the problem with that, right? You're exactly right. So Postgres, if you can leave the old instance up <laughs> and you can fire up the new instance, you can do an import of the data. Mm-hmm. And it'll pull from like eight four to eight uh, nine one or whatever it happens to be, but the problem with an OpenBSD upgrade is you upgrade the snap, you upgrade your packages, and that's it. You know, you're you're on nine one now. Right. And they were upgrading enough that it got intrusive. um, You know, at a time you're like, you you'd be sitting along following snapshots, and then all of a sudden it'd be like, hey, we're not on eight four anymore. We're on nine one. You didn't dump your database first off. So then you got screwed and you're like, okay, now I got to figure something out here. Um, and then, yeah, it, it was, it was always kind of a headache to, you know, migrate that data from one machine to another. I will say that um, on my laptop, that's kind of a problem, but in production environments that I've used in work, it just, it doesn't happen that way mm-hmm. um, because we always need to provision a new host anyway. Uh, I guess they're called guests in virtualization world. Um, but I think of host as like the server. So anyway, um, you spin up a new VM and you do the install of whatever version is on there then, and then you do an import there and, um, you know, so you have the old one up and running and you pull in the data and you're able to, um, you know, do the migration that way. So, yeah, um, it depends on the kind of the environment, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Um. Postgres seems like it has a lot of neat, uh, features. Like, uh, I know they have like the JSON data type where you Mm -hmm. can actually store JSON and then, uh, do like column stuff on it. But I guess I'm just in the camp of like using whatever is, uh, old and stable and secure. And I don't really have to deal, deal with, Oh, it's a new version and that experimental feature that we had in the last version that you were using. Uh, we've completely changed it. So now you have to like, you know, update your, application code and all that. Yeah. So like in MySQL, um, everything that I'm using it for is really boring. And I use, um, like I was even using Redis at one time as a key value store and I didn't want to deal with the replication of that and MySQL. So I just did a key value store inside of MySQL and I'm replicating that across two servers and it it works fine for what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. Now do you use that for like um, session management at the same time? Like, between multiple servers?
1: Well, I have, like, the way the pushover works, there's uh, two servers that are in um, different data centers, and they do live MySQL replication, Um, so it's doing master-master. So they both replicate to each other uh, over an SSH tunnel. And then only one of the servers is considered primary for most of the services, because I haven't yet figured out a way how to do... If you have unique indexes on a table... And then you, you hit the API running on both, or like you hit the database on both servers at the same time and they both insert that record with that value. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they try and, uh, replicate, obviously there will be a conflict. And the way that MySQL handles it is it stops replicating until you manually fix it. Um, which I guess makes sense. And so I've, I, when I tr- first started trying to do this, I would have to go in and then Manually, like, fix the data and then start replication again. But I don't know how to do this, um, without, like, I don't know how to do master master with both servers handling, uh, like a load balanced, uh, share of the requests mm-hmm. and still have that. Cause I mean, even without the database, like, just conceptually, it doesn't make sense. You can't have a unique index and then have two, um, servers that are potentially out of sync both doing something at the same time. Like, one of them has to lose. So, until I figure that out, I just have one of the servers um, taking most of the API requests based on DNS. Nice.
0: I remember a long time ago, I thought I wanted that with Postgres, and they were digging in their heels, so, like, nobody does this right. I'm like, people do this. I mean, come on, there's commercial solutions, and I'm like, use the commercial ones. And and, um, I waited and waited and waited, and now years later, I guess they have done a little bit better. I mean, they have support for those types of features and I don't know too many people who want to run that, but I remember early on, what was it called? Like Sloaney or something like that. The uh, You'd play the logs on another host and that way it was kind of like a warm standby. Hmm. And I was like, this needs to be built into Postgres. I like I need these features. I need these features. And they're like, nah, that's not really something we're going to do right now. And then they're like, well, maybe when we have some time, maybe when we get the to- Features blah 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 anyway, it was a big run around and um, and I'm kind of glad to see that they're starting to do it
1: now yeah uh, um, like with MySQL, you can configure the the replication to either use like the binary log mm-hmm. or you can actually have it run the query on both uh, machines so depending on the type of data that you're manipulating um, Sometimes you want to actually just transfer the binary log to the other host, mm. and then sometimes you actually want it to run the query to do the manipulation itself. I can't remember which one I'm doing, but... Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's working for pushover, and it's handling you know many, many requests per second of inserting uh, stuff into MySQL and then another all these other processes, reading it out and then deleting stuff and all that.
0: Yeah, I think um, in Postgres I used the write-ahead log is what... Well, the last time I checked, the most current thing was to use a write ahead log, and um, you basically just—it's exactly what you're talking about. You're you're playing the journal over on another host, so mm-hmm. it, it it keeps them in sync. Good old trusty databases.
1: Yep, you should just uh, run SQLite over an NFS mount. It would solve <laughs> everything.
0: <laughs> put put it all in memory, right? Like, yeah. Memcache DB everything, and then you're you're yeah. okay.
1: So what else do we have?
0: Yeah, what else is going on this week? Um, I have some uh, punchy, stabby things because work has had me busy lately. But what um punchy,
1: stabby things?
0: Yeah, like things that make you stabby and punch punchy. or stab someone. <laughs> yeah, like that's how I I feel inside, and I just want to oh, jab things. So.
1: We'll let it out, Brandon. That's what uh, this show is for.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that I've mentioned before about virtualization, my dear friend virtualization is, um, you know, thing like things like VMware, um, it needs a whole lot of stuff around it to make it actually work well, um, to work. You know, it's like, when we joke about something being an enterprise grade solution, it means it doesn't work or has a bazillion moving pieces or costs a ton or some conglomeration of all those things. And VMware, you know, you need like a SAN solution. You need a backup solution. You need some crazy hardware specifications, a lot of licensing and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's, they have this management console that they give you and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, it would be way easier than this umpteen bazillion dollar sand that isn't as performant as my workstation is if you just had a physical machine with a physical disk in it and you had 50 of them. And, uh, then you just had a, a piece of like software that could manage each of those machines, uh, just like the VMware console does. But they weren't virtual. And I was like, first off, I know that that exists, and I know that we have config management tools. Um, but you know, like visibility into resources and stuff, and that kind of like, I was, I was talking this morning with someone about the SAN and all this kind of stuff, which is what made me think about all this. But I built, um, a dashboard to monitor several of our servers at work. And it's basically like memory, CPU utilization, hard disk utilization, how full is your disk, um, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, wait, I, I really literally just recreated most of the VMware dashboard, <laughs> and you could easily use that on a physical machine. And it basically just updates uh, the information over a web socket and all this kind of stuff. So you combine that with something um, you know, that pushes out configurations to multiple machines and all that kind of stuff, and you really have... You know, the same type of tools that you have for a virtual infrastructure, but for real hardware. And, uh, I still think for a lot of the things that we do, um, you know, virtualization is not a real good fit. And, um, it often puts us, uh, pins us in a corner more often than it creates a convenience for us. You know, everybody comes in and is like, it's going to be so much easier. You can create a machine in five minutes. And then it's like, we don't have resources to allocate to a new machine right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, um, well, we can't fire up a new machine to migrate the existing one. We're going to have to take a snapshot of the existing one. You're going to have to do the upgrade. And if it fails, we'll restore the snapshot. And all these promises go straight out the window. So I still like physical hardware for a lot of stuff. Um, and I, and I do wish that, you know, maybe it exists. I don't know. Maybe I'm not enterprise enough, but I do wish that there was a little bit. Uh, better management for, um, you know, upgrading 20 of the same web servers or application servers that were all physical hosts, mm-hmm. doing an upgrade on five of them at a time and uh, automating that and scripting it out. So maybe that's where uh, maybe that's where this tool will wind up someday. I'll put it on a bunch of application servers that go web scale, and um, I'll have to <laughs> I'll have to have like a hundred of them or something like that.
1: There was a uh, a story going around recently titled uh, "Internal tools should be sold or killed," <laughs> uh, and what you were just talking about reminded me of that. Um, where basically, like, if you have to make an entire tool, like you just did, like you should sell it as a product because somebody else needs the same thing. Yeah. And uh, if you can't sell it and no one else needs it, like what is so unique about your business? Right. Like maybe there's probably another tool out there that you should be using instead. Uh, so you should find it. Um, so the whole article was basically like comparing, um, how much money you'd spend on like a product versus the, uh, internal like developer time to make your own tool.
0: Yeah. Uh, along those lines, I heard something else this week that really, um, got my wheels turning and it was like talking about software and it was like, um, software used to be written to solve a problem and now like 90% of the software that we have is to interface with other software. <laughs> and, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting because on the command line, if like I, I did the exact same thing, we have cron and at and, um, calendar and it just works. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had to re-implement that in a web interface, um, um, with a whole bunch of features and i mean it's just a monstrosity to to try and recreate and schedule tasks and have an audit of what should have run versus what did run and what you're showing in a journal and all this kind of stuff so um but yeah my software now is is all about interfacing with other software um i have this thing that should happen this scheduled job that should happen And it needs to interface with XYZ in order to work. And then here's the parameters around it. Whereas if I was at the command line, you know, I can just look at the calendar and look at the jobs that are scheduled and remove the jobs that are scheduled. And interfacing with those things is super easy because it happens through a shell. But Mm -hmm. now our software is all very, very difficult to interface with. Oh, you just make a microservice and then you talk JSON over the REST service. and (laughs) You know what I mean? Like It is. It's a lot different and it's not as good.
1: Yeah. You know, you see that a lot where someone will create a, a tool in Node.js or something that just replicates the functionality of a Unix tool that's been around forever. And it's like, wait, you didn't know that that tool existed already? And it's like, no, well, I wanted this one extra feature. And so you rewrote the entire thing in Node. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that it has like this, all these dependencies. That, no, that's just, it's aggravating.
0: Yeah, it really is. Sans are aggravating. Virtualization is aggravating. New tools that our rewrites of existing tools are and they're worse at it or completely aggravating.
1: Yeah. You know what isn't annoying? What's that? Or aggravating? OpenBSD. No. And if you're listening to this, you should donate to the OpenBSD Foundation cuz it's almost been an hour since we bugged you about it.
0: Yep. Get out your checkbooks. Ooh. Yep, and make a
1: <laughs> yeah, your checkbook and write a check to NPR and the OpenBSD Foundation. Yep. Is that all we have to complain about?
0: We had an interesting thing. Uh, I, I looked at this server today, and I noticed that Bash was allocating like eighty-six megs of memory per user.
1: Is this on a Linux server?
0: Yes, it was. I
1: was gonna say, why are you using Bash on OpenBSD?
0: I use Bash on OpenBSD for building Go. Um, it is a build dependency.
1: Oh, that's weird.
0: Yeah, they use, and they're pretty good about not being like Bash. Sp- Uh, specific but um anyway their build scripts are called bash anyway um yeah this linux machine and i looked and like a user was logged in it was like something like 86 megs for bash now if you have 150 users logging into a machine that's a lot of memory for like just the shell Mm -hmm. and so it made me look and i was like what, what is my typical login? I, I have about, um, 30 logins to my OpenBSD machine from three or four different users. And, um, I was like, well, I wonder how many I have. You know, that'd be chewing up a lot of memory on my machine. And I only have four gigs allocated. And, uh, KSH was using something like 600 to 900 KB each. And I was like, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so bash loses and K, KSH wins again.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I use Z shell.
0: Fun stuff. Well, good. We talked about a bunch of garbage again.
1: Yeah. Well, that's all we have for this episode. Uh, If there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at Garbage FM. Subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at Garbage.FM or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Brandon, where can people find you?
0: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W.
1: Are you not on Google Plus anymore?
0: Oh yeah, I still have Google Plus. Yeah. I've been <laughs> on Google Plus and uh ranting and raving as ever. Not usually actually.
1: Why are there no usernames on Google Plus and like your profile is some long random string of numbers?
0: Um that's my name in hex binary coded decimal item. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but uh it is hard to find people. I think it's like that's the reason, like, people don't want to put their applications as just a web app for mobile devices because you can't search for just a mobile app. You have to have it, like, in some app store. Google mm-hmm. Plus is the same way. It's like, hey, I'm out there. And they're like, where? And they're like, there's a search function on this website. You can try and find me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess Google's, uh, arrogant in that they think they know search very well. So they'll just force everyone to search.
0: Right. Ah, uh,
1: anyway, I'm on the web at jcs.org, and on Twitter at jcs, and I am not on Google+. Plus.
0: Cheers. I'll tell you what, we have great listeners, don't we?
1: Yes, we do.
0: They write us a lot of email and uh, encourage us with kind words.